So there's a couple things in my house that I'm constantly having to undo, like cables that are getting tangled that I'm always untangling. One of them is the cables for my recording equipment. I've got these long headphones, uh, cables, and uh, microphone cables. They're always getting tangled up together in a big knot. And it's always really frustrating when I wanna do a project, I have to unravel it all first. Another thing is the cords on the blinds that my kids are always playing with. Uh, these have been tangled up since day one, but they're always twirling them around or swinging them or swinging from them. Sometimes I can't even close the blinds all the way because of what a tangled mess this has become. Maybe you have tangles in your house that you're constantly undoing as well. Well, in the same way, as Paul teaches the churches in Rome how to live out their faith in Jesus, he has to undo a lot of their current attitudes. We've been seeing this as we've been looking at the beginning and the end of the letter. When you read Romans in reverse, you start by getting to know the people in the church along with some of their issues and also the divisions among them. Well, having learned this about them, when we get to Romans 1 through 3, and in chapter 4 as well, we realize that Paul does a lot of undoing. Before he can teach, he has to correct some false understandings. One is their idea about being privileged because they have the Jewish law. Another one is their boasting. Boasting in their status as Jewish Christians versus Gentile Christians. Now remember, in the ancient world, self-promotion and boasting was a common practice. It was socially acceptable. It was kind of the way things worked. And so teaching them that it wasn't the way of Christ was going to be a challenge for Paul. Another thing he had to do was their judgmental attitudes toward those who didn't observe Torah practices. And he sums it all up uh, in the middle of chapter 3 when he says, well then, should we conclude that we Jews are better than others? No, not at all. For we have already shown that all people, whether Jews or Gentiles, are under the power of sin. Now hold on to this idea here about being under the power of sin. We're going to come back to that in just a minute. But all throughout Paul's message of undoing, you get these little bursts of the gospel that jumps in. And sometimes it's just for, for a line or a verse or two. It's like there's this huge amount of information about the good news of Jesus that Paul is excited to share. And it's coming in chapters five, six, seven, and eight, but it's being contained behind this big dam. But it's so powerful, it starts to press against the dam and cracks start to show and this good news starts to spurt out. It can't help but seep through. There's examples of this I want to share with you. The whole letter starts with the good news. I mean, just look at the first paragraph, the first four verses. Look at how many times Jesus and the gospel are mentioned by Paul here. And then in Romans 1.16, For I'm not ashamed of this good news about Christ. It is the power of God at work, saving everyone who believes, the Jew first and also the Gentile. And then in chapter three, for God presented Jesus as the sacrifice for sin. People are made right with God when they believe that Jesus sacrificed his life, shedding his blood. And then at the end of chapter four, after he gets done talking about the faith of Abraham, Jesus was handed over to die because of our sins. And he was raised to life to make us right with God. What Paul is talking about here is salvation in Christ. And this is an important concept for Christians. I was taught about salvation in Christ from a young age. And sometimes it was taught with uh, images or stories that helped me understand it better. And maybe you've heard some of these as well. One person told me that it's like my sins were all written on a whiteboard somewhere. Everything wrong that I'd ever done. And when I believed in Jesus and his perfect sacrifice, when I was baptized, it's like Jesus took an eraser and he wiped all those sins away. Man, that sounds pretty good. I could go for that. 
Another image that I've heard a lot is uh, the story about a man who stands before a judge and he's got all these parking tickets. Uh, he can't pay the fine, so they sentence him to a thousand years in jail or, or whatever. And the judge, being just, has to uphold the law. So he pronounces the sentence, bangs his gavel on the thing, and, and then he gets up and he's immediately handcuffed by the bailiff. And he says, I am going to take on the punishment myself. Because as it turns out, the judge is the man's father. Dun, dun, dun. <gasps> no. I think other people tell that story better than I do. But another illustration about salvation that I've actually used several times uh, to explain the concept to somebody is this image of a, a giant chasm, and it separates us from God. We're over here, God is on the other side, and sin is what separates us from being with God. And we can't jump the distance, it's too far, we can't save ourselves, but Jesus, dying on the cross, created this bridge that allows us to get to God and to be saved. Yay! I like this image. Uh, it's easy. You can draw it on a napkin. It's, it's simple to explain. It's easy to remember. And all these illustrations are helpful uh, for the most part. And I think that they explain biblical truths pretty well. But there's a couple problems with these explanations too. One is that they tend to be a little too me-focused. They explain how my salvation is secure. And yes, it's not wrong to want to make sure that you are personally secure in your salvation in Christ. But if we treat it like it's the whole story, then we can run the risk of thinking that our only goal as Christians is making sure that we're saved. And once we believe that we are, well, that could be the end of it. A second problem with these kinds of explanations is they, they paint too narrow of a picture of what salvation really is. And they leave some very important things out. Are you wondering what those are? Are you like, okay, I'm with you, Jacob. So what is it we're missing here? Well, I'm glad you asked. In Romans, in chapters 1, 2, 3, and 4, in conjunction with all the undoing that Paul has to do for the churches in Rome, he gives us this picture about how even the law of Moses can't save anyone. Chapter 3, you get, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. No one is righteous, not even one person. That's the focus on our, our status before God. But then he zooms the camera out and he shows us this larger problem of sin and death in chapters five through eight, and talks about how Jesus took care of that once and for all with his death and his resurrection. So the problem is not just with our failures or our inability to follow the rules. The problem is this universal force that Paul refers to as sin and death. It's like they're these two main characters in chapters five through eight. One commentator I was reading did something really simple, but that really helped me understand this concept a little bit better. She just capitalized the words sin and death. And so instead of reading them as these abstract concepts or even these like biblical terms that we're all expected to know and understand, they became more like people. They became these two tyrants who are making every effort to enslave and terrorize God's good creation. Listen for this. Uh, let's do a quick survey of these chapters. Listen to how they're described by Paul and hear how they sound more like a someone than a something. Paul says that sin reigned in death. Sin deceived me. Sin was the thing that made me covet. Sin was at work within me. And he says we were all slaves to this person, sin. But in Christ, the body ruled by sin was done away with. We've been freed from sin. He says we died to sin, and now sin is no longer our master. And then in the same way, listen to how he describes death. Death entered the world. Death reigned. We were subject to death. 
We bore fruit for death. But then again, because of Christ, death no longer has any mastery over us. Death can't separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Jesus defeats death. He solves the biggest cosmic problem that's threatening a helpless humanity. So it's not just that Jesus paid the price for our sins or or stood in our place or took our punishment on himself. Instead, Jesus went to battle for all of us and he won and death couldn't defeat him. Sin couldn't keep him in the tomb. Jesus does what he said he was going to do. Remember back in John 12, right before the garden of Gethsemane, Jesus says, now is the time for the judgment on this world. And now the prince of this world will be driven out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. Jesus decided enough was enough. It was time to deal the final death blow to sin and death itself. Jesus is our victor. And that's why we sing songs like victory in Jesus and more than conquerors through Christ, our shield and defender, the ancient of days, pavilioned in splendor and girded with praise. It's a victory that's worthy of the trash talk that Paul throws down in 1 Corinthians 15 and at the end of Romans chapter 8. He says, then when our dying bodies have been transformed into bodies that will never die, this scripture will be fulfilled. Death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? For, the sin, for sin is the sting that results in death, and the law gives sin its power. But thank God, he gives us victory over sin and death through our Lord Jesus Christ. And then at the end of Romans 8, nothing in all of creation, he tells us, not death, or life, or angels, or demons, or all these other things will ever be able to separate us from the love of God that is revealed in Christ Jesus, our Lord. I'm going to get the chance to do some trash talking against sin and death at Bill Means' funeral this coming Friday. And I got to say, it's one of my favorite parts of a funeral. When you get to gather and honor the life of a faithful follower of Jesus, but at the same time, you get to say, in your face, death, Jesus didn't die. Bill is resting in the presence of the Lord right now, and we all get to look forward to being raised in Christ on that day of restoration that is coming. Why are we talking about this right now? Why is this piece so important? Because if we think of Jesus only as someone who who jumped in front of us, who took the bullet for us so that we could live even though he died, we might still be left with the idea that there's a threat, that we're still being shot at, that we're still being chased by someone. And if the last line in our song about Jesus is, but he died alone for you and me, then we might even start to think that Jesus is still dead. And we're thankful for the cross because it means that we are saved. But but what about the resurrection? It's not just that Jesus took a bullet for us. When we listen to Paul in Romans 5 through 8, we hear him telling about how Jesus snatched the gun away from the gunman. And he said, that's enough. You're done. We're going to have no more of that. This focus on the victorious Jesus, what some people call the Christus Victor emphasis, it doesn't mean that Jesus didn't die for our sins or didn't pay our ransom or any of that. You get plenty of atonement language right here in Romans. Now, I used to hear people's emphasis on Jesus' victory over sin and death, this Christus Victor uh, idea. And I thought that it was a way of them saying, atonement theory is wrong. All those illustrations you learned as a kid, 
don't make sense. Christus Victor is the new understanding. You need to update your files. But they're not mutually exclusive. They're both part of the same gospel message. Well, the reason I wanted to focus on this today is because if we spend our time focusing on just the one thing, then we miss out on the bigness, the, the greatness, and the value of the whole of salvation. When Lisa and I were first married, uh, we were pretty broke, and that was fun. Uh, but we were living in New Jersey, away from family. Lisa was in this intense graduate school program she just started, and I needed a job. I needed to pay the bills. So after a few months, uh, I got a job in a corporate office, and I was happy because it was a good job in a well-established company. It paid the bills for us. And in my mind, that's what I thought having that job did. It did one thing. It paid the bills. Needed to be done. It's done. Great. We're in good shape now. But the more that I worked there, the more that I realized the impact that this employment had on our lives. Turns out it wasn't just a paycheck to pay the bills. Turns out there were really good medical benefits that we got to enjoy. Sweet. Came to find out that the company had a tuition reimbursement program for all of their employees. They paid for my first 15 units of my master's degree. Uh, and it gave me money for books too. <laughs> That's sweet oh, too, I'll take it. And when I quit the job and moved to Memphis, an HR person came and said, oh, by the way, you've accrued all this money that we've been putting into a retirement account for you, so you know, here's a big old check. Sorry to see you go. I went, wow, that's way more than I realized. I thought that I was just getting a paycheck. The thing that I needed was being taken care of. It turns out this job impacted so much more than just me and my immediate needs. It ended up supporting me and Lisa as we did unpaid youth ministry. It set us up financially to have a family in California later on. It helped fund my ministry education, which impacts my preaching and makes it so that I can use fancy terms like Christus Victor on you guys today. Well, the good news of Jesus' death and resurrection is like that. It's not just one thing. It's not just about what it does for you. It has more far-reaching effects that impact the people around you, it has impact on people in faraway places who are coming to know Jesus, people that we'll never meet in other cultures and other places. And it has these cosmic consequences for all of creation. To illustrate the power of sin and death, Beverly Gaventa uses the illustration of a child soldier. Now we know even today there are children who are taken from their homes and they're raised to become child soldiers. And then they grow up and they kidnap other children who become soldiers as well. And the cycle just perpetuates itself and it repeats again and again and again. These children grow up in a system that is broken and corrupt and evil on so many levels, but it's all they know. They can't escape it. It's, it's just the very air they've been given to breathe. What needs to happen? Someone needs to break into this system and rescue these children from their captors. Well, Jesus' death and resurrection does just that. It breaks up the ringleaders of a heinous system and it says to God's children, you're free now, you can go. But it's understandable for there to be lasting traumatic effects on these child soldiers. They may wander back into the jungle looking for the only family that they've ever known. They may live their lives in harmful and manip manipulative ways because that's, that's all they've learned. But they don't have to anymore once the system is broken up. Whether they realize it or not, whether they embrace it or not, they are free. And that's where I think we find ourselves. The sin and death ring has been stamped out by Jesus. Salvation is here. We can be free. 
The question is, will we live like we're free? Will we trust and follow Jesus into life that truly is life? Like the churches in Rome, we may need to undo some old habits, some bad habits, some things that we've grown accustomed to. We may need to broaden our understanding about what salvation is, what it frees us from, and also what it frees us toward. It frees us toward new life, toward forgiveness, peace, hope, unity, love as the highest standard. It frees us to worship God, to give devotion to Christ, who is the one who saved us. And then going and sharing that good news with other child soldiers that we encounter. The good news that salvation in Christ is available. It's within arm's reach. So as we wrap up this message today, uh, I want to encourage you to keep talking about this, to keep these ideas going. I want you to interact with the discipleship questions that we post on our website every week. Each week we put up some conversation prompts so that you can continue letting these biblical texts challenge you and shape you. And so I want to encourage you, make some time this week to talk about these things. Go to those discipleship questions. Uh, I talk about them over the, the dinner table or in a video chat with someone or on a, on a phone call with someone that you like. Uh, maybe somebody that you know is, is hearing this message as well. You can access those discipleship questions by going to trivalleychurch.org. Uh, and then there's a discipleship questions tab that you click on. Like I said, I update those every week. Uh, just give you some new things to, to chew on so that this, these uh, texts can stay with you and uh, shape you. Next week, I'm going to focus on worship and the theme of acknowledging God that you see in Romans chapter 1 and in chapter 3. Uh, so I want you to help me out for something I'm going to do next week. I want you to send me photos and videos of ways that you acknowledge God outside of our Sunday gatherings. It's easy to acknowledge God when we're singing and when we're taking communion, when we're at church. But I want to see some examples of what that looks like outside. Maybe you'll send me a picture of a prayer place that you like to go to. Maybe it's a video of you describing a family rhythm that you have, like, like praying before meals uh, or whatever it is that you do. Maybe some visual reminder, like a cross uh, out on the wall or just some way that you remember to acknowledge God in your daily life. Whatever it is, I want you to send that to me. I want to incorporate that in our lesson for next week. Uh, I'd love to share those with the church. Some people are reluctant about sharing these kinds of things because they feel like it's tooting their own horn. Oh, look what I'm doing and I'm so great. That's not what it is. I think of it more as crowdsourcing spiritual disciplines. And Jesus put it like this. It's letting your light shine before others so that they can see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. This is not about tooting our own horns. This is about uh, helping each other out. So I'm hoping that you'll share some of those with me. It'll bless the congregation. Now I want us to close out by singing some victory songs. These songs that celebrate Jesus' victory over sin and death. As we think about how big and how important that is and how worth celebrating that is. Let's, let's worship together.